Chapter 3 of The Life and Works of Joseph Wright by William Bemrose. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 3 Candlelight Subjects The Gladiator Picture Commences to Paint Landscapes in 1772 List of Pictures Exhibited at the Society of Artists' Rooms List of Pictures Exhibited at the Royal Academy Wright holds an exhibition in 1785 of his own works in London. Wright's generosity in giving pictures to his friends. Wright, a pioneer in watercolor painting. It is interesting to note in the life of an artist who showed such varied talents at what periods he entered on the different walks of art which he trod with such success. We know that Wright painted portraits only whilst under Hudson's tuition, and even for several years after his second period of study under that master, which was during the year 1756, he seems to have attempted nothing else. We are also able to all but fix the dates of many of his early candlelight and historical subjects because they were exhibited at the rooms of the Society of Artists. Footnote. The first exhibition was held in April 1760. The catalogue of 1761 has two satirical subjects after Hogarth, and that for 1762 has a preface from the pen of Dr. Johnson. There were no exhibitions in 1779, 81 and 82, nor were there any between 1783 and 1790. The last was in 1791. And a footnote. The first of these appeared in 1765 and was called Three Persons Viewing the Gladiator by Candlelight. Footnote. The sitters in this picture were old John Wilson, an inmate of the Devonshire Almshouses, Mr. Burdett, and the artist himself. And a footnote. In the same way, we can fix approximately the date of his first landscape, as 1772. From such records we may also conclude with some certainty that it was Wright's own innate genius that impelled him to study those effects of artificial light with which his name is so strongly associated, for hitherto no English painter had attempted them, and he did not leave England till 1773. His visit to Italy in 1774-5, to where he saw a grand eruption of Vesuvius, merely turned his natural predilection for strange effects of light into a new channel. This eruption may be said to have been the father of his numerous landscapes of volcanoes and conflagrations. Of the eruption alone he painted about 18 pictures, each of which was treated in a manner differing more or less from the rest. In his striking picture of sun and moonlight, which also began about this time, we see the same love for unusual and powerful effects of light. From a letter in the possession of Lord Lansdowne, the owner of the gladiator, which by the courtesy of his lordship I am able to transcribe, we learn that this picture was not sold until the year 1772. In Wright's manuscript book, the price named is forty pounds, and Dr. Bates is entered as the purchaser. This price must be an error, or only a part payment, as will be seen from the letter which is from Wright to Dr. Bates, 
and was sold with a picture. There is little doubt that this was the picture mentioned in the letter, although it is not referred to by name. Quote, Darby, 12th September, 1772. Dear Sir, Last night I received a letter from our friend Burdett, whereby I understood you consent to give me a hundred and thirty pounds for the picture. I must let it go at that price, as I am under a necessity of immediately raising twelve hundred pounds on a mortgage, and have only a thousand by me. It was on this account I offered it to you at a hundred and twenty-five guineas, I shall say no more on the subject, only desire for my interest, you will never mention what you gave for it, as it might much injure me in the future sale of my pictures, and, when I send you a receipt for the money, I shall acknowledge a greater sum. I wish it may be convenient for you to remit me the money immediately, as Michael Mass is the time fixed for the payment of the money, and though I have lent more money than I now want, upon the person's bare note, and without interest, I know not a man that would lend me a hundred pounds without high interest and good security. You see how I am circumstanced, and have no doubt but you'll immediately assist me with the money if you can. I think myself much obliged to you for offering me the assistance any of your pictures can give me. I am, with compliments to Mrs. Bates, though not known, Dear Sir, your affectionate friend, Joseph Wright. End quote. Upon examining the following list of his pictures exhibited at the rooms of the Society of Artists, it will be noticed that for ten years, from 1765 to 1775, only one landscape is mentioned, but on his return from Italy, in 1776, he exhibited his first picture of Vesuvius, and from this date, he evidently paid much more attention to landscape, and almost ceased to paint candlelight effects, which, up to that date, had with portraiture almost entirely engrossed his pencil. Whilst in Italy, he made many landscape sketches from nature, which supplied him on his return to England with a greater part of the material for the landscapes he produced, from 1775 to within a few years of his death, although these were interspersed with scenes from Scotland, Derbyshire, and the Lake District. Wright was at an early period elected a member of the Society of Artists, to whose exhibitions in the Spring Gardens he contributed many years, as will be seen from the following lists extracted from the catalogues. It is to be regretted that at this date it was not the custom to mention in catalogues the names of the persons whose portraits were exhibited, and in consequence of the lapse of time it is now often impossible to identify them. Pictures exhibited by Joseph Wright at the Exhibitions of the Society of Artists of Great Britain 1765 Number 163 Three persons viewing the gladiator by candlelight. Number 164. A conversation piece. 1766. Number 195. A philosopher giving that lecture on the orrery in which a lamp is put in the place of the sun. Number 196. A portrait of a lady, whole length. Number 197. 
head of a gentleman. 1767. Number 188. Portrait of a gentleman, whole length. Number 189. A small candlelight. Number 190. Ditto, its companion. 1768. Number 193. An experiment on a bird in the air pump. Number 194. Two candlelights. 1769. Number 196. A philosopher by candlelight. Number 197. An academy by candlelight. Number 198. A lady. Number 199. A conversation. 1770. Number 154. Portrait of a gentleman painted by an artificial light. Number 155. A conversation of girls. Number 303. Child with a dog. 1771. Number 200. A lady and child whole length. Number 201. A blacksmith shop. Number 202. A small ditto viewed from without. Number 203. A small conversation. Number 204. Portrait of an officer. Number 205. A young lady undressing by candlelight. Number 206. An old woman knitting by candlelight. Number 209. The alchemist in search of the philosopher's stone, discovers phosphorus and prays for the successful conclusion of his operation, as was the custom of the ancient chemical astrologers. 1772. Number 369. A portrait of an officer, small, whole length. Number 370. A portrait of an officer, small, whole length. Number 371. A landscape. Number 372. A blacksmith shop. Number 373. An iron forge. Number 417. A moonlight. 1773. Number 370. A captive king. Number 371. An iron forge viewed from without. Number 372. An earth stopper on the banks of the Derwent. 1774. Number 321. The Old Man and Death. 1775. Number 223. A Smith's Forge, altered from his first design. 1776. Number 147. An Eruption of Mount Vesuvius. Number 148. The annual Girandola at the castle of St. Angelo at Rome. 1791. Number 291. Antigonus in the Storm. From the Winter's Tale. Number 220. Romeo and Juliet. The Tomb Scene. Noise again, then I'll be brief. Footnote. Captain Salmon, who then lived at Bretzel Priory, near Derby, Sat to write as Romeo. End of footnote. N.B. The above pictures were exhibited last year in the Academy.
but having been placed in an unfortunate position owing as mr wright supposes to their having arrived too late in london and have since received alterations he is desirous they should again meet the public eye number two hundred and twenty one inside an italian stable number two hundred and twenty two part of the coliseum number two hundred and twenty three moonlight view on the lake albano italy montegiora in the distance total forty three pictures pictures exhibited by joseph wright at the exhibition of the free society of artists seventeen eighty three number four moonlight number eighty nine boy blowing a bladder total two pictures in seventeen seventy seven wright does not appear to have exhibited at all but in the next year he commenced to send pictures to the royal academy a practice he continued with some interruptions until seventeen ninety four pictures exhibited by joseph wright at the exhibition of the royal academy seventeen seventy eight number three hundred and fifty seven an eruption of Mount Vesuvius with a procession of St. Januarius's head. Number 358. A grotto by the seaside in the kingdom of Naples with banditti. A sunset. Number 359. Edwin from Dr. Beatty's Minstrel. Number 360. Stern's Captive. Number 361. The Girandola a grand firework exhibited at the castle of St. Angelo in Rome. Number 411, Neptune's Grotto at Tivoli. 1779, number 358, the Girandola, or grand firework at the castle of St. Angelo in Rome, companion to the Vesuvius he painted last year. Number 359, Virgil's tomb, with the figure of Celius Italicus, who bought an estate and reached with this very tomb. He was frequent in his visits to this monument of his master. Number 360. Neptune's Grotto at Tivoli. Number 361. Two boys, whole length. 1780. Number 158. Eruption of Mount Vesuvius. Number 203. A cavern with a figure of Julia, banished thither by her grandfather augustus seventeen eighty one number twenty three a philosopher by lamplight number sixty one cavern in the gulf of salernum sunset number a hundred maria from stern a companion to the picture of edwin exhibited three years ago number a hundred and twelve cavern in the gulf of salernum Moonlight. Number 181. Portraits of three children. Number 224. Virgil's tomb by moonlight. Number 245. Portrait of a gentleman. 1782. Number 165. Two young gentlemen in the character of archers. Number 231. Old man's head in the character of an apostle. 1788. Number 81. Masonus Villa at Tivoli. Number 83. Cicero's Villa near Salerno. 
Number 96. View near Mare Chiare on the shore of Pausilipo. Number 98. The convent of St. Cosimato near Vicobaro and remains of the Claudian aqueduct on the river Arno. Number 234. View in the Alps on the site next Italy in the Duchy of Milan. 1789. Number 9. A Moonlight. Number 26. Cicero's Villa, an Evening. Number 67. The Prison of the Capitol. Number 74. Ruins of the Colosseo in Rome. Number 87. A Boy and Girl Engaged with a Bladder. Number 107. Ruins of the Colosseo in Rome with Banditti. Number 137. View of Cromford near Matlock. Number 153. A girl blowing a charcoal stick. Number 236. A dead soldier, his wife and child. Vide Langhorn's poems. 1790. Number 1. Romeo and Juliet. Act 5. Scene last. Number 221. Scene from the Winter's Tale. Act 3. Latter end of the sixth scene. 1794. Number 107. An eruption of Vesuvius. Number 232. A lake at Dunkeld in Scotland. Evening. Number 233. A village on fire. Total 40 pictures. From the foregoing list of Wright's contributions to exhibitions of the Royal Academy, it will be noticed that he did not send any between the years 1782 and 1788. This abstention was caused by his resentment at the conduct of the Academy, in consequence of which he refused the full diploma which the Royal Academy offers to him in 1784. From the following extract from the Athenaeum of January the 31st, 1885, it appears that Wright was not the only artist of distinction who, at that period, had to complain of the treatment of the Council of the Royal Academy. Quote, In the archives of the Royal Academy is a letter which has special interest. It is a complaint addressed by Gainsborough to the Council of the Academy about the manner in which his most important contribution to the gathering of 1784 had been treated being placed in a position, he says, unbecoming its character as a group of royal portraits, and unjust to himself as a R.A. In the end, with several other works the artist left at the hanging committee's discretion, the picture was withdrawn so that the Academy gathering of 1784 comprised no Gainsborough. The artist abandoned the Academy altogether, and during the four remaining years of his life, he sent no more pictures. End quote. The doors of the academy being thus practically closed to write, he determined on another plan for bringing his works under public notice. In 1785, he opened an exhibition composed of 25 of his own pictures at Mr. Robin's rooms, Covent Garden, London. This is an early instance of those exhibitions devoted to the compositions of a single artist, which have of late become so frequent. In the catalogue of it, which we are unable to reprint, it will be noticed that 15 out of the 25 works exhibited were not for sale. A catalogue of pictures 
painted by Joseph Wright of Derby and exhibited at Mr. Robin's rooms, late Langford's, number nine, under the great piazza Covent Garden. All have their brilliant moments when alone, they paint as if some star propitious shone, yet then, e'en then, the hand but ill conveys the bolder grace that in the fancy plays. Hence, candid critics, this sad truth confessed, accept what list is bad and deem it best, lament the soul in errors thraldom held, compare life's span with art's extensive field, and know that ere perfect taste matures the mind, or perfect practice to the taste be joined, comes age, comes sickness, comes contracting pain, and chills the warmth of youth in every vein. Mason's translation of Dufresnoy's poem on painting, verse 697, etc. 1785, printed by J. Barker, Russell Court, Drury Lane. A Catalogue, N.B. Such pictures as are marked with an asterisk are to be disposed of. Number 1. The Lady in Milton's Commerce Verse 221 Was I deceived, or did a sable cloud turn forth her silver lining on the night? There does a sable cloud turn forth her silver lining on the night, and casts a gleam over this tufted grove. Number 2. Asterisk A companion to the preceding picture the widow of an Indian chief watching the arms of her deceased husband. This picture is founded on a custom which prevails among some of the savage tribes in America, where the widow of an eminent warrior is used to sit the whole day during the first moon after his death under a rude kind of trophy formed by a tree lopped and painted, on which the weapons and martial habiliments of the dead are suspended. She remains in this situation without shelter, and perseveres in her mournful duty at the hazard of her own life from the inclemencies of weather. Number 3. Asterisk William and Margaret, from the celebrated ballad in Percy's Relics of Ancient English Poetry, Volume 3, 16. T'was at the silent solemn hour, when night and morning meet, in glided Margaret's grimly ghost, and stood at William's feet. Number 4. Asterisk. View of the Cascade of Turni in Italy. Number 5. Virgil's Tomb by Moonlight. Number 6. The Lake of Nemi, a sunset. Number 7. Asterisk. Julia, the daughter of Augustus and supposed mistress of Ovid, deploring her exile by moonlight in a cavern of the island to which she was banished. Number 8. Asterisk. The happy meeting of Hero and Leander, after his swimming across the Hellespont in a tranquil night. Number 9. Asterisk. A companion to the preceding picture, the storm in which Leander was drowned. Number 10. A landscape, morning. Number 11. A seashore, evening. Number 12. Matlock High Tor, moonlight. And number 13. The Maid of Corinth, 
from Mr. Haley's essay on painting, verse 126, etc. O love, it was thy glory to impart its infant being to this magic art. Inspired by thee, the soft Corinthian maid, her graceful lover's sleeping form portrayed. Her brooding heart his near departure knew, yet longed to keep his image in her view. Pleased she beheld the steady shadow fall by the clear lamp upon the even wall. The line she traced with fond precision true, and drawing doted on the form she drew. Number 14. Asterisk. A companion to the preceding picture, Penelope unraveling her web by lamplight, from Pope's Homer, the second book of the Odyssey, verse 99, etc. Allusive of the bridal day she gives, phoned hopes to all, and all with hopes deceives. Did not the sun throw heaven's wide azure rolled for three long years, the royal fraud behold, while she, laborious in delusion, spread the spacious loom and mixed the various thread? Where us to life the wondrous figures rise? Thus spoke the inventive queen with artful sighs. Though cold in death Ulysses breathes no more, Cease yet a while to urge the bridal hour, Cease till to great Laertes I bequeath A talk of grief, his ornaments of death. Lest when the fades his royal ashes claim, The Grecian matrons taint my spotless name, When he whom living mighty realms obeyed Shall want in death a shroud to grace his shade. Thus she, at once the generous train complies, Nor fraud mistrusts in virtue's fair disguise, The work she plied, but studious of delay, By night reversed the labours of the day, While thrice the sun his annual journey made, The conscious lamb the midnight fraud surveyed. Number 15. A distant view of Vesuvius from the shore of Posilipo. Number 16. Asterisk. The Companion in the Gulf of Salerno. Number 17. Asterisk. A Landscape. Moonlight. Number 18. A View in Dovedale. Morning. Number 19. Ditto. Its Companion. Evening. Number 20. Portrait of an Artist. Number 21. Asterisk. Guy de Lusignan in Prison. Number 22. Portraits of three of Mr. Newton's children. Number 23. A wood saint, moonlight. Number 24. Asterisk. A view of Gibraltar during the destruction of the Spanish floating batteries on the 13th of September, 1782. It may be proper to inform the spectator that the painter's original plan was to execute two pictures as companions to each other on this event so glorious to our country. In the first, which is now exhibited, he has endeavoured to represent an extensive view of the scenery combined with the action. In the second, which he hopes to finish hereafter, he proposes to make the action his principal object and delineate the particulars of it more distinctly. Number 25. Portrait of a Gentleman. Finis.
Wright so far forgave the injury he considered the Royal Academy had inflicted upon him as to contribute to their exhibitions in the years 1788, 1789, 1790, and 1794. Though from the correspondence printed in Chapter 6, it will be seen that his paintings were not treated with much consideration. One characteristic worthy of notice in Wright's portraiture is the lifelike and liquid look that pervades the eyes. He was also particularly happy in his treatment of the hands of his sitters, which are very different to the misshapen forms that often do duty for hands in paintings by popular artists. An exhibition in which his pictures were an important feature appears to have been held in his native town some two years afterwards, for the Derby Mercury of October the 3rd, 1787, contains the following advertisement. Exhibition from the numerous and genteel company who have visited this exhibition. The inventor will continue the same for one week longer, and to the effects already shown will add various others from some of the justly much admired paintings of Mr. Wright of Derby the effects of which beggar all description, and for which purpose Mr. Wright has politely sent the inventor his paintings. It is hoped none will miss the present and only opportunity of gratifying their curiosity. Admittance from ten in the morning till one, and from four till eight in the evening, at Mr. Wood's confectioner in the court market, at one shilling each. While, however, Wright appears to have had a proper sense of his own merits as a painter, and not to have lost sight of the advantages of keeping them before the public, and though on certain occasions he held out for his price, he was neither conceited nor ungenerous. Of his liberality sufficient proof is afforded by his numerous gifts of valuable pictures to individuals among his private friends, and to persons to whom he thought himself under obligation. In various instances these gifts were manifestly disinterested, and that they were often, and probably always, conferred in a very pleasing manner, which declined rather than sought the expression of gratitude, the following records will sufficiently vouch. Quote, Mr. Haley to Mrs. Haley, As I love to make you a sharer in every pleasing occurrence of my life, I cannot let a post depart without dispatching to you an account of a circumstance which has given me no little delight. Berridge last night committed a box to my care, declaring it contained something for me, but requesting that I would not open it till he arrived here today. After spending an agreeable morning at Hampstead, I met the dear physician in Cavendish Square, and while I was dressing he displayed his skill as a carpenter in opening the packing-case. When I came from my dressing-room to the dining-room, he surprised me with an exquisite picture of Virgil's tomb by Wright, putting into my hand a letter from that amiable artist, requesting my acceptance of this poetical scene, and added that the splendid frame which contained it was the gift of Dr. Berridge. End quote. The following is part of a letter written on the margin of a pencil and wash sketch of St. Peter's at Rome with a bridge and tower of St. Angelo, to someone in Derby, in the year 1774, when Wright was in Rome. Quote, the coloured drawing I will do for you must be upon a larger scale, and sent by a friend, as I don't wish to do them as letters, 
but I presume the enclosed sort as sketches of observation, or possibly to remove any doubt in regard to particular objects, as I take them as faithfully as I can, and shall do the others also. In the meantime, I beg you will make no scruple in mentioning any particular objects that you wish, as I have justly every reason to have the greatest esteem for you, and having experienced your sincerity and friendship, I beg you will mention no more about the prices. In the exhibition of Wright's works, held in the art gallery at Derby in 1883, was the latest portrait of the artist. Footnote. The frontispiece played in this volume is taken from this painting, now in the possession of the Honourable Mrs. Griffith, Yoxall Lodge, Staffordshire. End of footnote. This picture was also a gift and was painted at Yoxall Lodge, the residence of his intimate friend, the Reverend T. Gisborne, when Ride was there on a visit. On the back of the picture in Ride's handwriting is the following. Joseph was right. Anno Domini, 1793, etat. 59. Manu propria, tabulam hang, amico suo, T.G., dono detit, pictor. At Oxton Hall, another inscription of the same class is to be seen, in Wright's handwriting, on the back of a portrait of John Holland, who was a very intimate friend, viz. John Holland, painted by his friend Joseph Wright, A.D., 1787. However odd the fees portrayed, what artist has a better made? Again on the back of a landscape, now in the possession of Godfrey Wedgwood, Esquire, is written the following. Quote, the gift of Joseph Wright to his friend, Joss Wedgwood, Esquire, the patron and encourager of living artists. 1787. End quote. In the appendix, amongst the list of pictures, will be found many more instances of such gifts, thus given to my friend Tate, for Mr. Haley, mem, not paid, etc. As a watercolour painter of the English school, Wright must be ranked as one of the earliest. Whilst he largely used chalk, pencil and oils in his sketches, he also used watercolours in not a few of his Italian sketches taken in 1774. He evidently little thought then that watercolour painting would advance and take the high position as an art that it occupies today, when he, as a pioneer, made those early watercolour sketches. For he, in his correspondence, remarks, quote, 1795, I am glad to hear my friend Tate succeeded so well in watercolours. I dare say, when the application of them is well understood, it is pleasant work. 1793. I am sorry I cannot fulfil my engagement with Mr. Moreland. Mr. Gisborne does not think himself at liberty to divulge Smith's mode of washing with watercolours. In 1795 he writes, quote, I am glad to hear my good friend Tate has laid hold of his brushes again. Paper and camel hair pencils are better adapted to the amusement of ladies than the pursuit of an artist. End quote. The Messrs. Redgrave, in their Century of Painters, say, quote, We have heard of, but not seen, works in this medium by right of Derby. End quote. 
It is gratifying to know that there are in existence some interesting landscape sketches and portraits in watercolors by Wright that tend to show that Wright could use the new medium with great effect and brilliancy. End of chapter 3